Hi, this is Marshall Toplansky. And Joel Kotkin. And welcome to the Feudal Future podcast. If you're listening, it means you're interested in creating a better future, one that values diverse discussion and preserves opportunity for the middle and working classes. This is why we started the show, to bring together ideas and people that challenge the notion of a hierarchical, socially stagnant, and centrally programmed future. Maybe you've experienced the rising costs of home ownership, diminishing job prospects, or the burden of over-regulation and increasingly censorship. This is happening in cities everywhere, and we recognize the need for new action. For this reason, we created the Beyond Feudalism Facebook group, a place for you to connect and share resources with like-minded people. Here you'll be able to ask questions, network, and share your own stories and ideas on how we can bring opportunity and common sense back into our civil discourse and governance. Consider this a hub for all things feudal, where we'll be sharing insights from our recent Beyond Feudalism report with Chapman University, clips and highlights from the podcast, and links to related content on topics such as housing, education, energy, transportation, and entrepreneurship. Much of our focus has been so far on California, but we expect to see this work and apply this work to conditions around the world. Well, as you could probably tell, we're not too excited about the path we're currently on as a society, but we are hopeful for what's possible. And if we can better understand what's happening and build momentum to overcome the trends, so much the better. So we encourage you to join the Facebook group via the link below to get involved and keep up-to-date information on all new developments. And for more information, my new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, outlines everything that's happening and where we need to change. The link to that is also in the show description. So thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs. And many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs, who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever, and it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are so excited to have Tracy Hernandez with us. Tracy is the founding chief executive officer of the Los Angeles County Business Federation, also known as BizFed. It's a 
very extensive group. It has 180 top business networks within it, more than 400,000 business members, very diverse. In addition to serving as the founding CEO of BizFed, is formerly the publisher of the Los Angeles Daily News, and currently uh, runs a consulting company that um, is called Empower Group, that is an advisory company specializing in startups or strategic transition for utilizing unlikely partnerships to achieve achieve greater impact. I'm sure she's going to tell us a little bit more about that. But before we get um, to Tracy, uh, I wanted to set the context a little bit, Joel, if that's okay with you. Great. Um, We're going to try something new in our podcast. We're going to actually try screen sharing. So we're going to bring ourselves into the 21st century of Zoom. Um, And I'm going to put together a chart for you that, um, here we go. Hopefully we'll be able to see it a little bit better now, that um, gives us the good context for this discussion. What you're seeing is a quarter-by-quarter Um, analysis of the growth in innovation businesses in different states. We've chosen a select group of states that have significant innovation industries in them already. And you can see California is highlighted in in orange and the average of all uh, states that have innovation industries uh, in significant numbers is in yellow. And so this goes back, this is looking at year over year um, changes. So we avoid any kind of seasonality skew. But if you look at the, if you look at the orange line, you can see that with the exception of a blip up in late 2017 and early 2000, going through 2018, California has actually been at the bottom of the states in terms of creating innovation industry growth. Uh, and right now, over here, you can see it at the bottom. We are at the bottom. And um, that is not portending well, especially since anecdotally, uh, we have some recent evidence that uh, the innovators of our state are are hightailing it out of here. We have uh, HPE just left. Uh, we have uh, Oracle is moving its headquarters. We have Elon Musk who's announced that he's leaving. So we're very concerned that our innovators are leaving the state. And so we thought we would talk to Tracy about that because if anybody has uh, a finger on the pulse of what's really going through the minds of the entrepreneurs that we care about here in the state, she would have that. So welcome, Tracy. Thanks for that. Appreciate your forbearance on the long-winded intro, (laughs) but uh, thank you for being here. And uh, Tracy, the first thing is, you know, as Marshall mentioned, you know, these departures, for the first time, I'm getting the sense that there's now some sense of panic, even in Sacramento. Um, I mean, they are a rather dull group, but eventually things become too real. Um, and um, and of course, this is particularly important because as we've lost so many of our more traditional industries here in Southern California, aerospace, obviously, we've lost um, a lot, you know, CBRE, we've lost a lot of business service companies, both here in Northern California, this departure of these uh, innovation industries um, should be a warning sign. 
Um, do you get any sense that the people, the powers that be up in Sacramento are, are shaken up at all? Well, that's a fascinating question, Joel. Something that we're in the business of doing, actually, at BizFit. That's what we're here to do is shake up the lawmakers and get their attention so that they can get real-time intelligence from the diverse business community. As Marshall mentioned, we have over 400,000 companies and employers here in the greater LA area, all in the Federation. And so every size of company, whether you're a small sole proprietor, you might have two or three or 10 employees up to the largest employers with 30,000 people. They're all united in this effort of needing to get greater focused attention from our lawmakers and elected officials on the importance of the economy and the fact that policies, laws, and regulations have near-term and long-term effects. And it was interesting, Marshall put up the grid and, and it's the boom and bust of California. And that's a common thread that we see in a lot of sectors. And so when talking about innovation, right now there's some high concerns. I think um, people are paying attention, one, because the COVID pandemic is very much still alive and real. And because of the force to remote work and then the decision by employers, employees, sole proprietors, independent contractors, large-scale um, corporate or Wall Street companies are all seriously making different decisions about what they're going to do post-pandemic in their operations. So when you say, are people paying attention? I'd say, yes, they're paying attention. One, you'll look at our governor. Um, he's just shaken up his staff at every level. Um, many um, of new appointees, new positions, looking more political in his communications and his future forward managing. His economic task force for COVID disbanded uh, without much uh, result. Mm. And that makes a big statement. Mm. There's a new head of GoBiz, which is the department of the state that's focused 100% on businesses and economic development and the like. I think the legislators are about ready to start their new two-year session. They've put a limit on the amount of bills that they can introduce so they can stay focused in four particular areas, which is a radical change. Normally, they can introduce 50 new bills every session, and they've put a limit on that to 12 this time and a focus. So people are scared. And you know what? The, the thing that I see on government finally waking up to it is their own budgets. They're now doing all the forecasting of their own budgets. What's the state going to have? What's the, what are the counties going to have? What's every individual city going to have? They're all forecasting major deficits and problems and balancing their own budgets. So now it's come to roost at home. We as businesses and entrepreneurs, we've been doing that every month, every year, right? We're all looking at that. We've seen the impacts before government, but now they're starting to see it. And I think you'll see real change. You know, I would love to hear your thoughts that, about the new head of GoBiz, who is Dee Dee Myers, formerly the uh, White House uh, communications director under Clinton. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think of that as a choice for GoBiz? Hmm. It's a different. It's a different choice. Uh, we have we've extended an invitation to her, and we're soon to be meeting with her. So, in conversation with her yet? I'm looking forward to that. I think that's coming within a few days. 
And I'd be able to give you a lot more direct input on what she says is her priorities and why she's taking this on. From an outsider looking in, it's a very different uh, placement than Lenny Mendonca, who held it before, who came from McKinsey, who was a business person, spent a lifetime of high impact, um, private sector, public sector, civic engagement, jobs, growth, development, strategic analysis of all parts of our state. Very different uh, person. Uh, Didi is, of course, we've just all seen her from her public life and she's talented and fierce, very political um, and very strategic that way. So how that translates into, you know, focused economic development planning for the state, I would say the jury's still out on that. Yeah, it would seem to me that also part of the issue that we see like in our recent report on feudalism is the vast majority of the members of the of the majority of the democratic uh, democratic majority in, in the legislature have no business experience at all. And you would think that Governor Newsom, seeing what's happening, would have tried to appoint a, a Meg Whitman or somebody who had stature and who could talk directly. You know, when when we I do a lot of work in Texas, and when you go to Texas. The people in economic development all have private sector experience and think like private sector people. It seems to me Didi Myers is just another spinmeister, which seems to be, you know, it's not really getting anything done. It's it's like when you mentioned the the post the COVID task force, lots of bells, whistles, you, you know, blaring trumpets, and nothing happens. And that seems to have been the experience in recent years. Yeah, and not only did the nothing happen, but um, as you know, there was a very important CEO who was on that task force who left before it was even disbanded because of frustration. Very large employer in the state, very much the integral part of the Los Angeles and the Southern California um, ecosystem that sets the stage for the world. I don't know if you want me to name him by name, but I think you guys know who he is. And the, uh, Robert Iger, the president of uh, of Disney. Okay, a, a little, I wasn't sure if we were little local go okay. or not. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that what um, talk about innovators. If Disney isn't one of the biggest innovators in the world, that's what we're talking about today. And you have their CEO saying they're he didn't even wait till it disbanded. He left before because it was a statement of great concern and caution that he was supposed to have the ear of the governor and this task force to make a difference. And yet it fell on deaf ears. And while the the theme parks and have opened in other places in our country, despite COVID with great, I mean, if you've been on call, I was on calls with them talking about their um, safety, health and safety measures, you know, um, it could probably be a safer place to be than your home. The measures they were taking and that they're doing in Florida, they're operating without outbreaks and so on. But yet that just fell on deaf ears here in California. And they're just like, fine, let's just let 50,000 employees go and crush a whole iconic industry that is California to the nation. And how that falls on deaf ears, I don't know. Yeah, and, 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 and when you say it falls on deaf ears, I, I, you know, I'd love it if for for you and for our viewers to really, if you could elaborate what deaf ears actually means. Is it well, we don't care. It's not. It's not something that really is on our radar screen. Is it? You know, it's it's not even a. Is it denial of the problem? I mean, you know, what what is deaf ears really mean? 
So Marshall, I'd say it's even a bit worse than what you described in that deaf ears in, in our case on this is choosing to listen to other elements, choosing to make decisions. So you, you know, you're an elected official and you're hearing, especially this particular example is navigating through COVID, which is a health pandemic, right? So you're now listening and you're getting intake on input on what to do, not to do. And then what you do is purposely make a decision on who you're going to listen to because you can't make, you have to make decisions that you're a lawmaker, you're an elected official to represent people, make decisions on our behalf. And so then you're purposely choosing decisions that impact jobs and companies and people's livelihoods and saying that's acceptable to have 50,000 people be out of work to crush a whole industry sector with all the ripple effect. There's thousands of vendors, not just the direct employees, thousands of vendors and businesses impacted by that. You say, that's the acceptable decision rather than finding a way forward to have them operate in a safe way, maybe a limited way, but how do we get from here to there? And some of the things we see, I'll just say it's even, it's worse than in a pandemic. We could set the pandemic aside. This is radical, crazy times. And we could go to things that are driving innovators out of business, such as labor and employment laws. This AB5 is the bill that codified the Dynamex court decision that dictates how independent contractors versus employees and how in, independent contractors are independent business owners. So, Tracy, it sounds to me like we're doing a lot of things to chase businesses away. What are some of the things that we're doing related to employment and, and uh, um, uh, you know, the environment for businesses that are currently here that are having the most deleterious effect? Well, we're making it very hard for businesses to innovate, create, start, grow, expand, because at the core of all business is the relationship with your employees, your vendors, and your customers, right? It's the people side of your business. And how and what are the rules of the road to contract vendors, to contract people, to hire employees so that you can create your goods and services and get it to your customers, right? That's the base of any business. And so when you make those rules of the road very hard, very limited, very costly, or ever-changing, all of that adds a level of complexity, cost, and concern to the business owner that's making the decisions where they reside. And so the fact that we've decided to say that we're going to, as a state, um, basically try to eliminate contracted relationships... (laughs) is incredibly horrible. And we've just probably begun the cycle of businesses fleeing to other places. Well, and, and how is it that the unions, this is clearly being driven by unions, right? This is why that unions do not like independent contractors. They're not paying union dues. They're not full timers. They're theoretically not getting benefits. How is it that such a dramatic, a dramatically bad business environment could still get through our business people just not getting their message across or the unions just that strong? Well, Marshall, what we just experienced November 3rd was the um, passage of Prop 22, which was the app-based driver's um, ability to continue to operate in California. And thankfully, the voters in mass, I mean, it handily passed, which means people in California, not lawmakers, people in California in mass 
dramatically said, no, we want to have this ability for businesses that serve our needs as you know, as a consumer to be able to have the ability to contract um, the people to help them accomplish their goals. So the app-based drivers won and they won big and they won the ability to continue to operate. As you know, heading into this ballot measure, when the law had been written before November 3rd to say they couldn't do it, some companies announced they were going to leave California. Can you imagine that? Like how many, how many things have you ordered online just this week? How many boxes have you know been delivered? Well, some of those were through app-based drivers. Did you order any food to be delivered to your house? You know, and that is or groceries. So people of all size and shape, seniors, June, you know, teenagers, and all of us in between are having things delivered to our home. And so that's very much a part of our, our whole economy. And the, the fact that the state passed laws that they were going to, you know, cripple and basically let app-based driving companies say, I'm out of California. They did. It wasn't a guess. They said, I'm leaving California. Well, fortunately, the voters said, no way, no how. Lawmakers, you don't know what you're doing. We need to have this flexibility. And of course, if, if you've been in anyone's, if you've ridden a Lyft, an Uber, you know, DoorDash, any of the people that work there, um, they're all, these are side hustles by and large. Right. And they're not looking for, they're not, their expectations are not full-time employment. That's actually part of the benefits to them is that it's flexible. Absolutely. And they totally control when they work, how long they work, how they'll work. They're doing it around their own personal life. Maybe they have kids they are working around schedules, other jobs. Some of them have, um, you know, enter- we're in Southern California, in the entertainment sector, you know, business there. Sometimes they're working full time and then they're completely off. So then they can pick this up or, you know, your hours change. So anyway, the fact that where are you going to find a job? that you can choose every day when you wake up, am I going to work or not? Am I going to work an hour or eight hours? Am I going to work in the morning or the night? You know, all that. So it's very much serving a need, both for consumers and both for people who need to earn a living. Um, And so we're glad the voters of California set the lawmakers straight on this one. And and to follow up on this, and maybe to have a um, maybe undue optimism or something, but it seems the voters were much more sensible than the than the politicians. If you look at Proposition 15, which I think would have been catastrophic for small businesses who all of a sudden in the middle of a pandemic would have been paying higher rents um, uh, on on rent control that failed almost everywhere. Um, So it sounds to me and even if you want to get into affirmative action, I mean, the voters didn't follow the progressive script. It, do you do you think something's happening? I mean, outside of the city of LA and San Francisco, which are continuing to or, orbit Pluto, um, what, what you know is there something happening out in the great you know um, the great expanses of California? Some return to some common sense, and is that something business can take advantage of? Um. Yes, I mean, the people's understanding of economics, right? And because when it impacts you personally, then you understand economics, right? So you don't have to be, you guys, the smartest people on earth studying this 24-7, but you can just understand, can I pay my bills and can I earn a living and can I accomplish the things I want? So because so much is impacting real people, they're, they're paying more attention. I think, like you said, Prop 15 the attempted largest property tax increase ever 
you know, and trying to take that out of just, as you said, the lion's share would be small business owners who don't own their properties, but they lease them. And this is, I had to do a lot of education on this during the election campaign and that um, leases are written and codified. Like I, I lease a property for BizFed and in my lease, it's not like a friendly negotiation of will I pay more in taxes if taxes go up. It's written in there. I sign and agree when I'm going to take on that property, that property taxes will be passed on to me as a small business employer. And so that's exactly how that $12 billion a year was going to come out of all these small businesses that are barely holding on. But even past COVID, you can't just have the single biggest property tax increase at $12 billion a year and expect there to be no outcomes. And now let me pivot to one other thing, Joel. We just polled recently and um, of all those business owners, large and small, and we were really curious about uh, post-COVID. You know, we have to pivot to we're going to be out of this at some point. And then what are the long-term or um, near-term impacts that people did during COVID that will remain and those that will just go back to business as usual. So the one thing we found, and I found it actually surprising, we said, how many of you, you know, so many are working remote, running either all or most of their operation remote. Some have a mix and and some are essential and couldn't do any. So we asked them all. The numbers were 82%, 82% said, they will continue post-COVID with some aspect of remote work being a part of their operations when none of when remote work didn't exist at all before. 82%. So meaning only 18% said we're going back to 100% person, business as usual, 18%. Yeah, by the way, that, that data that you have, that this is a study that you did within LA area? Yes, yes. Yeah, so that, that data, I saw some data the other day from Gensler who has done the same kind of work uh, globally and very similar results around the world, actually. Really? So, yeah. So it's going to be fascinating in terms of its impact on real estate values for office real estate and just kind of the nature of that business. But as you're saying, I mean, uh, people's lives are truly hit an inflection point. Yes. And so now this, or do you live in California or live out of California? So we all, I can give you a lot of anecdotal information, but the statistics will say there will be a huge change in the high value middle class that can move, right? And they're the biggest tax, you know, the middle class, that's the, you know, you're making enough and you're buying enough and your kids are getting educated, you're paying the most taxes, usually that's the middle class. So we really need that in California to help everyone else, right? To make it all work. So that is the area that you will see people able to perform their work and then choose to live somewhere else that's more affordable and more, you know, all the of the above. Like Tax one thing, friendly. Talk, right. you got the whole deal, mm-hmm. right? And so people and companies then that are going to have a lot of remote people, they don't care. Maybe they need half their workforce here and they don't care if half their workforce is in other places and they're going to do some mix of that. So then that all comes into play and then that all goes back into the public tax coffers. Um, The other thing we found in this poll real quick, I just want to tell you, Marshall, because I know you look at this stuff too, is that um, taxes and fees. So, you know, as you know, California is a high tax place. And it's, not, it's also the most wonderful place in the world to live, right? We're all choosing to be here. Um, 
you know, put our kids through school here to live here to buy real estate and so on, because it is an amazing place to live. It's and but what happens when you you're okay to pay high taxes if you get high reward. So when I pay high taxes, are my roads in the best repair? Are my you know communities and streets and sidewalks in great repair? Are my trees and parks? And do I have the best and all the things you expect when you're is my education or my kid I just I have college age kids but I just put them all through school and so is my, are my kids getting educated at the highest standards you know because I'm paying the highest taxes anywhere that's one equation if the answer is yes then that's an okay equation the problem is our metrics don't meet that we have the worst roads you know we have our our parks and trees aren't up up kept we're always fighting our air and our water access reliability and our energy our education ranks in the middle to the bottom so we're getting we are not getting premium service for premium taxes oh and and you know it's funny you should say that because the people that i talk to um, have historically tried to quantify how much all of the amenities of California contribute to California's kind of superior environment, you know, uh, living environment and its attractiveness to people. And so much of it is weather related mm-hmm. and climate related that as we see what is obviously some kind of a shift in in climate, will California maintain that that amenity status, right? Or will people say, you know, I could kind of deal with wildfires in any state that I choose to move to. Um, maybe I should just, uh, you know, pick a cheaper place to get burned out of. You know, um, I, so, um, you know, I wonder whether we'll maintain that superiority. Well, the other thing that I wonder about, Tracy, and you follow Sacramento probably much closer than we do. Um, my understanding is that um, what in our piece we talked about a, a wealth tax and a big boost in the income tax is that something that that business has got to be concerned about now? Um, I mean, particularly the wealth tax seems to be a, a huge issue. Well, again, that boom and bust situation in California, right? The highest income earners in California pay disproportionate share of the whole state budget. What is it? Forty percent is paid by one percent. Half of it's forty percent of the state's income tax budget is paid by a half of 1% of the people. And so then we're relying on, do they have a big public offering in that year, you know, or, and do they stay in the state in Silicon Valley and others, or are they heading out and all of that? So just that general theory about wealth tax and does that, you know, work or not work? I've talked to some of the authors and people involved in advancing that. And sometimes people have to put forward things that are part of a public discourse or dialogue without great fervor or intention to see it through. And I think that might be one of them. So, so is AB 2088 going to be one of the 12 bills that the legislature has decided it's going to pass this year, or is it not on the agenda? And that's the wealth tax one. Sorry, I didn't know the number. Yeah. 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 I if, as a, you never know in this place, but if I were a betting person, I would say that is not going to be the one they lean in on to pass this year in this session. Yeah, because I think it is in the people that we've interviewed over the past month or so, um, it is such a line in the sand for successful entrepreneurs and business people. And that if there were 
um, if that bill were to um, were to advance, I think you would see a major major exodus from the state. Yep. The, the one other thing, just you know, as as we wrap up, is we're talking about you know when we talk about the wealth tax, we're talking about the elites and 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 they're important and we need them. But right now, I'm, I assume you're hearing a great deal in your job from all these small businesses in LA and rest of the state. Um, with the governor's COVID uh, regulations, particularly the uh, ban on outdoor dining, which was always, I mean, you know, you can ban outdoor dining in New York in the snowstorm and nobody cares, but, you know, you, you know, we could eat outside. I mean, and, 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 you know, we have this wonderful weather. So the question is um, how, um, how severely impacted is this world of, Small businesses, many of them in LA, probably the majority are are minority owned. Um, what are you hearing from out out there in the field from these people? And is there any relief on the way? They are freaking out. You might have uh, been reading about protests, so that's not an everyday thing for business owners to ever be protesting. I mean, you know, it's not a common thing. And you'll you've seen over the last two weeks all over the greater LA area whether it was in the San Fernando Valley, it was in West Hollywood, it was in Culver City, it was everywhere. Uh, Literal protests of restaurant owners and employees of restaurants out protesting the closing of outdoor dining. So here's the thing. You can say um, that that's a targeted area. We would say, where's the data? Where is the science and public data to say that we will, it's outdoor dining is the source of COVID outbreaks and we have to close it. If, if anyone could prove that and say it and show it, then we would have to say, okay. The problem is no one can prove or show that outdoor dining is the source of COVID outbreaks. Now, second, you're gonna, what's that's a tipping point. Always we have these things about how long you can hold on and can you get some help and what do you do? All those restaurants had to spend money out of their pocket to do outdoor dining. None of them were set up in the streets and their parking lots and sidewalk. They all spent money to do that. Now there's zero return on that investment. So now get ready. You're gonna have a whole slew of bankruptcies, business bankruptcies. And what does that mean? Not just that restaurant and those employees, but then the vendors, All those companies and their employees will be left holding zero money. They can't collect on it because they went bankrupt and a whole ripple effect. So now you're now closing not only restaurants, but all the vendors to those restaurants because of this whole slew of bankruptcies that could easily come forward. Now, is that when you don't have any health data to say it's going to even make a difference in the pandemic, which we see the largest spikes today in Los Angeles again, and the restaurants were closed. How did, you know, anyway. Don't get me going on it. People are are crazy, sad, emotional, freaked out, losing everything they have, and they really care. And a lot of restaurants are families, as you know, the employees, not literal blood families, but they interact each other with each other almost as families, the employees and the owners, um, their little ecosystems, and it's just devastating. Well, and you know, for people who are distressed in that way, business people that are just on the edge, you know, they probably recognize that this is a crazy time with the pandemic, but what they appreciate most is at least having an ear of somebody who appreciates what it is that they're going through. And it's one thing to have biz fed and chambers of commerce and, you know, all sorts of business 
groups um, have empathy for them, but I think they would appreciate having some empathy from the state. And this is what we're concerned about as we see the trend of uh, businesses leaving the state, and that is that the state does not appear to have any empathy to what their issues are. And this is like our li- our largest su- uh, em- uh, source of employment. It's the largest uh, contributor to the economy. And it seems like the state is just turning a deaf ear to these things, using the pandemic as the, as the um, excuse to not have to listen. So that's a concern that we have. Well, that's why we need you, Marshall. We need you, Joel. We need this podcast because the voice can't be squelched, right? We have to keep speaking up. And that's a big part of what we're doing every day because you never know when there's a turn to be made to because the elected officials, lawmakers, they're hearing from all different aspects. They're getting their all their own pressure points every single day. So we just have to make sure the cacophony of what we have to say just is relentless, doesn't stop, and we'll break through. We get we get breakthroughs, we get wins along the way, um, and we never give up, right? So that's what we have to do. So I appreciate what you're doing here on your podcast. Well, we, we wish you continued success, and thank you so much, Tracy Hernandez, for joining us and uh, for being part of the Feudal Future podcast. Thank, thank you. you. That, was, that was terrific. <laughs>